Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today is Yancey Ford, whose Netflix film Strong Island is one of the five films uh, Oscar-nominated for Best Documentary at this year's Academy Awards. It's a really powerful film in which Yancey looks back at the circumstances surrounding the violent death of his brother in 1992. This will also be the 50th episode of the Toolkit Podcast, and will be the last one before we go on hiatus for a couple months. And but as we get ready for the Academy Awards, it's a great time if you haven't already listened to some back episodes with filmmakers uh, behind a lot of the Oscar-nominated films. Guillermo del Toro talking about Shape of Water, Dee Reese on Mudbound, Lady Bird's Greta Gerwig, Call Me By Your Name director Luca Guadagnino, Jordan Peele on Get Out, Baby Driver's Edgar Wright, Big Sick, Planet of the Apes, Wonder Woman, Florida Project, um, Abacus, which was a surprise nominee. We talked to Steve James uh, last year. I'm really fortunate to talk to a lot of the uh, directors behind some of the best films of this year, which is why, if you get a chance, please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and that way you'll know when we're back this spring talking to the filmmakers and showrunners behind the best shows and movies uh, for 2018. This week's episode of the Toolkit Podcast is brought to you by Annihilation in theaters February 23rd. When a deadly and mysterious phenomenon is taking over the world, a group of scientists must face humanity's greatest challenge yet, a world where annihilation is imminent. From the visionary writer and director of Ex Machina, Annihilation stars an impressive ensemble cast of Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, and Oscar Isaac. Don't miss the film critics are raving is a movie experience you can't miss. Get tickets to see Annihilation on February 23rd now. And here's my conversation with Yancey Ford. William, William was murdered in 1992. You were an art student at the time, that's right? You were, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, if, I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, you kind of instantly started, not in a film, not in a film art way, but kind of instantly kind of processing his death in, in, in the work that you were doing at the time, right? Yeah. William was killed um, a week before my 20th birthday, actually. Um, and I was a sophomore at Hamilton College. When I got back to campus, um, you know, Hamilton is one of those schools that doesn't have a lot of art majors. So, you know, I essentially you know, had a small group of um, you know, fellow artists who I, I studied with, you know, since, you know, you declared your major. Um, and I had, you know, a small group of advisors. Um, and I immediately just sort of, you know, started folding his death into my work um, as, a, as a way of, you know, sort of processing the aftermath of his death. Um, but also as this thing that just was, you know, sometimes you get something handed to you right, as an artist, and it was the most urgent thing I had. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I took that, um, and I, I used the, the urgency of the moment to begin trying to figure out how to work with his death as subject matter. Um, and the funny thing uh, is that I was just on the cover of the alumni magazine at Hamilton, um, and you know, I, I, I got them to swear that they would Photoshop my face. Because I, you know, I had just been on a plane and then I got on a train and then I, you know, got in the car um, and I was super tired. Um, and they didn't Photoshop my face, but they did go back and talk to the professors who had been my advisors at the time, mm. one of whom is still on staff and one of whom um, is no longer on staff, but who is now like one of my oldest friends. Um, and to hear them talk about what they saw emerging in the years subsequent to William's death that I was still on camp when I was still on campus um, is really eye-opening 
Um, oh, because is it online? I'd love to check that out. Um, I think it's online. Yeah, I think yeah. it's on. I think it's on the Hamilton uh, College website. But you know, the fact that my voice, um, you know, then um, is something that they see in the film now. Mm. Um, it's really, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling for me because, you know, people have asked, like, it's, it's, you know, have asked me about the film, like, you know, for your first film, it's so assured. For your first film, it's so. You know, precise. It's so you know, like in command or whatever. People have have ex how they've expressed their astonishment at you know some of the choices that I made and the fact that I was really sure about the choices that I made. It's because I've been working my way toward understanding those choices and making those choices um, for the 15 years uh, that preceded the beginning of the film. And you've been in the documentary world for a while, mm -hmm. but not as a filmmaker. You were you were a key figure over at POV. Worked. Yep. I mean, everybody in the documentary world has known you before this, but yep. not as a filmmaker, right? Right, right? And so, but then somewhere, I guess maybe like seven years ago, or the, mm -hmm. you, uh, you tell us, but the um, a sense of not only wanting to move into becoming a filmmaker or being a filmmaker, but also the idea in your forties, or maybe it was your late thirties. I don't know at that point that yep. that that almost 20 years later you would you'd like to revisit this material and this obviously what's a huge part of your life in the form of a, of a film right I wonder yeah. if you could talk about that yeah. kind of what what process you know what yeah because it's different the motivations of a 20 year old art student sure in, in, of course in the initial grieving and then someone looking I, I know that you're not still grieving but no no, no. it's 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 a really good question um you know I think I look back at that 20 year old and I'm really glad that you know, at the time I made the decision to start because I don't think I would have um, made a film then, and I'm glad because the film that I made, the, the film that I would have made at that age would not be would not have been a good film. Um, you know, I was I had been at POV for four years uh, before I told anyone on staff that I had had a brother who was murdered, um, and you know, there was everyone sort of gets to that moment where you're in like, like your third or fourth year at a place where you're thinking about. Okay, what comes next for me? Am I going to double down in my commitment to this institution, or, you know, am I interested in being a programmer at some other place? Um, is festival programming of interest to me? You know, I, I was sort of you know assessing my um, my choices, um, and when I was doing that, you know, part of what was part of part of the decision I had to make was, am I going to continue to be a gatekeeper, or am I going to you know sort of admit that I have a story to tell and start doing what I've seen so many other people do for so many years, mm -hmm. um, which is to sacrifice and to fundraise and to you know work a day job and then go home and work nights, evenings, weekends, vacation days to, to begin making this movie. And with the encouragement of a friend, um, I decided to actually stay at POV and to double down um, and to start you know, pre-production on the film. Um, that was 2006, 2008. Um, sorry, development began in 2006. You know, you know pre-production uh, began in 2008, and I started principal photography in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and two years after that, I quit um, because it was impossible for me to continue to, you know, uh, work at POV with the with the sort of slate of responsibilities that I had that I took very seriously. Um, and to commit the time that was needed to make the film um, and to actually go further into principal mm -hmm. photography with all of the you know, requisite you know, planning and, and shooting and all sorts of things. Um, so I, 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 I took that leap 
in 2012 because I felt ready then. I wasn't ready before then. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I decided not to try to make it earlier. I'm glad I decided not to, to become a programmer at a big festival. Um, and, and when I left in 2012, it was April. And in February, Trayvon Martin had been killed. Oh. Um, so, you know, the, the urgency of the film um, was now long, no longer mine. Right, like I started, I started working on the film before Black Lives Matter emerged as a movement, um, and you know while uh, you know Trayvon Martin and you know well, essentially while George Zimmerman was justifying to the country why he had shot and, and killed a teenage boy, um, what I didn't anticipate at that time um, when I left POV to focus on the film, you know, was that there would be five more years of unarmed black people being shot, you know, with the same sort of justification that George Zimmerman used um, when he killed Trayvon Martin. So, you know, looking back, you know, however old I was at that time, I guess um, I lose track, honestly. Um, it, was, it was just the right time. You know, we had discussed this before, but, you know, when I had first seen the film, it felt to me, the way it feels as a viewer, not knowing you, mm -hmm. Um, going in is, is that there seems to be it, it feels as if there's a therapeutic process as a filmmaker in mm -hmm. making this there's I don't know if the word is cathartic um, and and then speaking to you uh, and, and I think that's to the, the film's credit that it feels that emotional and like that but yeah. that is not where your mind was and, and not to say that you have processed all your grief or anything but that, that that's not that wasn't the motivation in, in making this film at all and that wasn't something that you were going through in making this film, although it feels that way, right? There, the motivation was something was some, something quite different. The motivation at the beginning was what happened, right? And I and I and I figured out the answer to that question um, really quickly. What happened to my brother has happened to you know thousands of black people since the beginning of this country. Um, and when I moved into the question of why did this happen and what happened afterward, that's when I really found the meat of the story. That's where I really found, um, you know, the, the thing that had, I, in my opinion, been unexplored um, uh, in films that I'd seen about, you know, um, these kinds of um, killings. And, and they, for the most part, to my, if my memory serves correctly, they hadn't actually been told by someone who had survived um, or been related to someone who'd been um, killed before then. Um, so I was really looking at the why did this happen and why did my family implode as opposed to explode, right? Like, I, William was killed two weeks before the Rodney King riots um, or the, the Los Angeles uprising, depending on your uh, point of view. And, you know, I remember sitting up and watching those, watching the news, like, literally all night and wondering, like, why didn't my community do that, right? Why didn't my black middle-class community um, write letters and make phone calls and sign petitions and, you know, um, and you know, go go through the processes of seeking seeking justice that way. There wasn't even much media surrounding. There was no, there was there was no media. There were fewer than three thousand words in the local paper, the local news station. They didn't even archive the wraparound news story. They only archived the B-roll, and the B-roll that they archived, I don't even think was the entire you know night's worth of um, B-roll that had been shot. They only archived the B-roll that made it into the news program. Right, so, so William essentially, when he was killed, he disappeared. And 
you know, I was really, I, I, I really needed to know why my, why my parents made the decision that they made, um, you know, to stop at a certain point. Um, and it became really obvious, you know, when, in talking to my mother, that they did so um, because they were being threatened. Um, and when you say stop, you mean stop pushing for justice, stop, 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 stop searching for answers. Yeah, like they they exhausted all of their options in the in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. right? Um, the DA declined, even though they could very easily have represented new charges to a new grand jury with new evidence. Um, they declined to, to do that. And so the only other option my parents would have had at that time was to bring a civil suit. And in order to bring a civil suit for wrongful death, you have to assign uh, a dollar value to somebody's life. And my parents refused to do that. Mm. And so in the absence of, of any other due process, right, in the absence of any other um, recourse, you know, the choice that I had to make, um, w you know, was, was this film, right? And, you know, my, my producer, Jocelyn Barnes, says it really well in that, you know, personal, personal filmmaking is the language of the dispossessed, mm -hmm. right? When you have been left with no other recourse, this is the path that you take. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how we wound up here. Um, I want, because this, this film went through, uh, and you finding your voice as a filmmaker went through um, a major transition, and I want to I talk about that, but yep. going back, because I think it, you've just set up a lot of it, some of the initial intention that, uh, in what you're talking about wasn't, you know, obviously we're, what we're talking about is choices yeah. and yeah. how you're going to tell the story. Of course. And so before you kind of reinvented this film in that original part, I, there, there's a couple, I think that kind of stemming off what you're saying here is some of the choices, and one of the choices was um, in telling your family story is also a backstory, yes. going back a generation, and also being able to also maybe put in context with your parents' generation of African-Americans in kind of the New York exactly. area, right? And yep. that, that, that was, that's like a, I think when in documentaries we're used to some form of backstory or B-roll, but that was like a key part to you mm -hmm. telling what is a very personal story, right? I'm gonna yeah. talk about that. You know, I, I decided to go that far back. Uh, because one of the things that I thought was really important was to was to emphasize that my family did not begin with my brother's death. My family began um, in you know 1950 whatever um, when my mother, as a sixth grader, um, would look for my dad. You know when when the seventh graders would change classes. Um, you know in the hall of the elementary school, right? That that my family began with this kind of classic American love story, um, where, you know, grade school sweethearts became high school sweethearts, became newlyweds, you know, moved to New York to start a family and, and did um, both steps of the Great Migration story um, themselves, right? If you follow the, the, the usual tract of the Great Migration of, of African Americans out of the Jim Crow South, um, you know, those families would go from the South to the city. Um, Northwest, you know, like California, Midwest, Northeast, and then from those cities, their children would move to the suburbs. My my father especially wanted to move his family to the suburbs um, in his lifetime, and, and and my brother was five years old um, when my family, you know, when we moved to the house in Central Islip. So it was important to have you know to have that journey in the film so that folks understood the stakes. Um, you know that were 
um, at play for my parents in making the decision to take their family there. Um, and, and they were a little ahead of the curve, if I remember right? They're, they're, little, they're a little ahead of the curve out to, to, to They the were a little bit ahead of the curve, but when we got to long, when we got to the neighborhood where I grew up in, in Central Islip, um, and Central Islip is a town that literally has the Long Island Railroad running through it. And so mm -hmm. at that time, you know, there were, um, you know, predominantly black families um, uh, in the southwest portion of, um, of Central Islip and then white families on the other side of, of the tracks. And those, those folks would work in, uh, in the same places in the city. There were cops and firefighters and nurses and teachers and con ed workers and, and you know, a stable um, you know, municipal workforce. Um, that would go and go to you know go to work in the city and then come home to the suburbs at night, um, and that's because those builders really targeted people who worked for the city, because those those salaries are public knowledge, mm -hmm. right? And so um, the houses were priced you know at a specific price point that you know the builders knew that you know municipal workforce employees could afford, um, so it was a very calculated. Um, construction of this suburban neighborhood. Um, so when my parents got there, they met lots of other black families who had kids their age who were working in similar jobs, um, and it became like a second family for them. You know, like all the people who were my parents' contemporaries, um, you know, they were like, you know, surrogate parents to all of us growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, they all, everyone was like that. Um, we all grew up playing together, and all of them came to you know, um, the Walter Reed Theater when the film premiered. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it was important that my family arrived in Central Islip um, in the film so that people would understand that they didn't just wind up there by accident. Mm -hmm. That it really was the fulfillment of, um, you know, their pursuit of the American dream. Right, mm -hmm. which is a house with a, with a backyard um, and streets where, where your kids can go out and play and be safe, and you know your own two two car driveway and, and a kitchen, and you know like it it was it was what you were supposed to strive for, mm -hmm. right? And they got and they got there, um, and you know, but then the film goes on to show is how easily this you know this event sort of blew it blew everything to smithereens. I, let's talk about oh, so one other thing is also um, in terms of telling this story and telling the uh, and the people of your family and your brother's friends. Hmm. There's also in that sense of not even in that framing it of a backstory, but also a very intentional way in terms of how you shot them. Yeah. Right. And and that's something I know the project changed, but that was something that was also very important to you in terms of how not only what we heard of their stories, but also how we kind of visually interacted with them. Right. Exactly. Like so. You know, that material was shot before, you know, and, and the look of that material was shot, um, you know, before I sort of rebooted the edit in a different place. So it was always my intention to sort of to do two things, um, to, to give the characters in the film um, the kind of authority that black characters don't typically, typically get in documentary film, right? Which is to, to first of all take a step back mm -hmm. to allow you know to allow these characters to inhabit their space, right? Um, to put them in particularly meaningful spaces. So my mother is shot in the kitchen, which is the center of the home and often the center of the family. Um, and you know Harvey is in his man cave and his you know suburban house in Delaware. Um, Kevin actually is uh, shot first in my mother's living room and then the two of us sort of enter this 
um, you know, sort of darker contemplative space together. Um, my sister shot in the room that had been hers, um, in my, you know, in the in the house where I grew up, and I my character shot in the sort of contemplative darkness as well. Um, so you know, to sort of establish, you know, the authority of the story and the storytelling coming from the characters themselves. Um, the the second part was really, you know, trying to answer the question of how do you make uh, a story that is about a murder that happened 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, how do you make that dramatic? You know, like how do you how do you bring tension? Um, how do you, how do you bring suspense? Um, you know, all of the things that are, are that are that are vital and necessary to filmmaking. Mm -hmm. How do you bring those elements to a film where you don't have any archival material, where you don't have any surveillance footage, you don't have any body cam footage, you don't have any social media posts because none of that existed. Mm -hmm in 1992. So, you know, this sort of direct camera engagement was the way to create the kind of tension that would, you know, otherwise have been, um, you know, made possible by different, you know, elements and, and material that we just didn't have. And so, at a certain point, you've done the interview, you've done a lot of interviews, mm -hmm. um, and you hit a little bit of a wall. There's something that's not working um, yeah. And you, you'd, you'd referenced uh, your producer Jocelyn Barnes. That's when she, she got involved, and, yep. and there's some other nonprofit organizations that got involved. But I'm wondering if you could talk about that. What, what you know, obviously there were some very big changes, and I want to talk about those. But what yep. what what wasn't working? What what was sure. what like kind of like prompted this? Yeah, you know, um, I took a bit of a hiatus. There was a, there was a, you know, a, um, I won't reveal it because it's, it's sort of a spoiler. Um, but there's a, there's a big, um, unexpected turn for one of the characters in the film. And after that turn, I, you know, I put the project on hiatus. I stopped shooting for a few months. Um, and when I came back from that hiatus, um, I shared the, I shared the cut with a, with a few close um, advisors. Um, you know, Jocelyn, who had been an executive producer at that point. Oh, she was already, okay. Yeah, she, okay. Was, already, she was already an EP. Uh, Laura Poitras, um, you know, Alan Jacobson, the DP, and the editor, Joe, Joe, Joe Binney. Um, and, you know, what I realized after talking with them was that the stakes really changed for me as a storyteller with that um, unexpected event, mm -hmm. right? And then with that, um, with that turn of events, I had to, you know, I had to accept that there was a, there was, there was now more at stake with the story than ever before. Mm -hmm. um, and I had, I think, as a director, but also as, as the child of the parents in this film, I had sort of settled into uh, a place of, of safety with one character in particular with my mother, I was really safe with her grief, but I was not, I think, safe with her more complex, um, you know, statements in the film. I was, I was less comfortable with her, um, with her anger. I was less comfortable with some of the really brave, but kind of radical things that she had to say. Um, and I decided that I needed to, you know, sort of check my own um, misgivings about, you know, what if we let this character say, you know, I failed you because 
I taught you guys to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Mm. Right? What if we go that way instead of, you know, I failed to keep my son alive. Um, you know, I failed to seek justice. Um, what if we have it be a more complicated, um, you know, expression of grief? What if we let the anger in? What if we let the, um, the, the, you know, the destruction and the, and, the, and the erosion of the marriage and the family and how everyone's sort of like scattered to the wind? What if we let that in? Um, in doing so, it became a more difficult um, film to cut um, but it became a, a film that was truer to the experience. Mm -hmm. um, I had been very protective of my sister, um, and, and I had kept her out of the film for a long time. Um, and then I, I realized that keeping her out of the film and keeping her out of the story would essentially be silencing, silencing her, mm -hmm. um, you know, for essentially a second time. And, and we hear in the film how my parents, thinking that they were protecting her, you know, would often send her away, mm -hmm. right? And so that, that sort of left that character on the outside of the, you know, collective experience for as collective as mm -hmm. it was able to be. Um, and even, you know, my, I had a rule that there wouldn't be white characters in the film. Um, and then I, I realized, you know, when I was sort of interrogating all of the things um, that I had sort of put into place, um, I realized that actually the white character in the film is the only person I know who's been shot, you know, who has a direct connection to my brother. Mm -hmm. So if I, if, I, if I stuck to that, there will be no white people in this film, I was losing the ability to have someone who was connected to William talk about what it was like to survive a gunshot. So all of these things that had been, you know, these really comfortable parameters for me as a director and also as, you know, and also as a character in the film, I, I had to leave them behind. I had to take them down. I had to, I had to say, okay, we have to pump the brakes because I've, I've gotten a lot of this wrong. Right. Um, and in pumping the brakes, you know, um, I, I took a step back and schedules and, you know, things being what they were, you know, the editor at the time had, had another project that she was committed to. I obviously can't keep, you know, people on. Um, past their, you know, other existing commitments. Um, and that's how I wound up in Copenhagen. Um, you know, I reshuffled the team. Um, Jocelyn came on, you know, is from, moved from EP to producer. Um, and, you know, at a certain point when I decided to start again, and we were, we were still shooting, mm -hmm. right? So, and, and because that had been going on, you know, production and post-production at a certain point had been happening in tandem. Um, and informing uh, each other. And, and, and we're informing each other, yeah. Um, the one thing I realize now, and you know, the, the mistakes that you make as a first-time filmmaker, you don't really realize them until after mm -hmm. you've made them. Um, I thought that I was going to be able to cut the film remotely for the entire time, um, and, that, and that ultimately turned out not to be the right de decision for me as a director. Um, so we had, you know, an, at in April, May, right, I, I sort of pumped the brakes again. I, I spent, you know, a couple months in a, a dark room by myself going through the visual library that we had shot. Um, we don't call it B-roll um, because it's not meant to cover anything. Um, and by the time I went through and categorized, you know, like, you know everything, every single shot um, that we had, um, Jocelyn had come back and said, you know, I have an idea for an editor. He's in Denmark. And I was like, oh. When, but that also was because 
every other American editor was working on a Sundance project. Right. You know, and so it was like, yeah, I would love to work with you if you wait until January. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to wait until January. So, you know, long story short, um, we went to Copenhagen, met with uh, Janus Bill Scott Fjansen and Sina Sorensen um, from Final Cut for Real, um, interrogating each other about the movie. We watched a ton of material. These are people that were involved in Josh Oppenheimer's films. Yeah, right? and these are, yeah, the yeah exactly. The Look of Silence and the Act of Killing. Yeah. And Yanis, I think, did the... Really in amazing work, but also incredibly innovative. In incredibly terms innovative. In terms of their storytelling. I mean, yeah. the, you know, the production um, of that film was just immense. Um, you know, so, um, you know, I, I essentially, um, you know, after those four days, um, it came back to the States, and I, I spoke with my partner, um, and you know, I talked to my sister, and I, you know, a couple of days later, was on, you know, essentially on the way to packing, mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, was in Copenhagen for nine months over twelve, um, you know, working six days a week, you know, eleven hours a day, and that's that's also I, I have to imagine that's also a mindset. I mean, I think I I, I can't remember if I heard read this or if this is from our conversations, but suddenly you're. You're an African American Copenhagen working on a film that's that's very much about like the black experience in America. Exactly. Exactly. You're you're dealing with someone that is helping you reinvent the film in a structural sense. Right. Um, and, and, and I ha so I, there's a mindset, but also I want to tie this also to something structurally. There's a few big changes structurally. This film, the story of the event of what happened at this garage where where William was killed, yep. um, is suddenly split up differently yeah. and unfolded and so we as an audience who don't know the story right. are experiencing it almost I think it's like almost seven sections right like, yeah I, mean, I think we go back to the garage itself three times and then we go back to um, Kevin three times and then there's I think my mother telling the, the version of events once so I, so I do think it's seven times but I wonder I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to that both the sense of like being in there you have this editor who is incredibly innovative yep. but also being in Copenhagen and being removed from that and then that that process of rethinking of how we're going to structure and tell the story sure you know being in Copenhagen actually made the alienation of the process make sense if, if that you know if, if that's sort of something that is clear at all you know there, there was something about you know and I was also in Copenhagen at the height of the, you know, Brexit, the rise of the Danish right, and the rise of the migrant crisis, right? So as a person of color in Denmark, you know, you're sort of in this island. And as an American, though, it sort of means that you're not a person of color in a way, right? Because you're an American. You're not living in the part of, of Copenhagen uh, or in, in you know downtown Copenhagen where you know the the migrants are, are housed or you're, you're not living sort of on the outskirts. Even though I actually I, I lived the longest in uh, in, a, in, a, in an apartment that was sort of on on the outskirts of, of the center city. Um, so there was just something about the isolation of Denmark that helped me and gave me a kind of clarity. That I hadn't a I hadn't been able to achieve when I was here, um, because when you're here in America, you know the the dialogue about race and the criminal justice system is something that everyone is having, um, or that's you know not everyone but 
sort of people in my circle were having, and that they were very versed. Even in, in the documentary world, in the documentary and world, world, and, and you know, in the activist world. When I got to Copenhagen, the the criminal justice system in the United States was so foreign and and completely illogical to Janus that we spent a ton of time having to be super clear about everything. And that push for clarity, the relentless interrogation of the system itself, mm -hmm. really lent a clarity and, and really resulted in a clarity in the film that wouldn't have been um, there otherwise because it's only when you get outside of the United States that you realize the underlying assumptions that are in the presentation of the material. Even though you don't mean to, um, you know, build something with underlying assumptions there, right? There, there's, there's a common knowledge that you assume everyone brings to the film. Mm -hmm. And because we were, you know, we were working with partners who didn't share that common knowledge, we were forced to um, make it, you know, make this crazy system of ours as clear um, um, and as succinct as possible. Um, and so we were able to achieve that. And we also, you know, sort of were four people kind of brainstorming, well, how is this, you know, gonna work? Like, how are we going to get to know William and find out more about what happened? How are we going to fold, you know, like Yancey's character into the movie? How are we gonna fold this love story into the movie? How are we gonna fold this, you know, story of this sort of like three musketeer, you know, like sibling relationship into the movie? Um, and we, when we, you know, sort of arrived at this elliptical structure, you know, it made it made perfect sense, you know, and it was sort of like the Rashomon um, idea, um, but you know, there were many more characters. There's um, a dramatic element, I think, to to returning to that other aspect of it mm -hmm. in that sense of um, it gives it that sense of you know. Obviously, this is fascinating material and, 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 and intellectually stimulating, but the, the idea being is, is that how are you going to hold on to an audience for, for 90 minutes? Yeah. There is that sense of, um, in any story or any piece of art that holds itself that long, there has to be an anticipation of what's going to happen next. Exactly. And in that structure exactly. of unfolding it, it's not like you're being cheap and building a mystery, but right. in a sense, there is this forward drive because you stop and we bite into this, but then there's this other part. Exactly. So you're kind of using the narrative that way. Exactly, and, and by, going, by going forward and then going back again and then going farther forward and then going back again and then go f going farther forward, you know, when, you know, when you learn more and more about William and this, the entire crime and the night and all of the things that were sort of surrounding this um, case, um, it does, by the end, the cumulative effect of everything you've learned, um, I, I think is really what, what makes the film so devastating. Right. Um, because you know William, you know his complexities, you know his hopes, you know his dreams, you know where he was the morning that he was, you know, the morning of the day where he was killed. Those multiple reveals um, really do make the film a dramatic experience. Let's talk for a second about um, your, you refer to yourself as your character, yeah. the, the anti-character. Um, <clears throat> remind me, were you in it before the change, before that, the change of the story, the, the sense of like with the new editor and things like that? I was in it, I was in it before the change, but I was, I was in it in a, a more, um, in, in a more sort of, uh, it was a it, it was a to be determined 
kind of integration of Yancey that was to come. Okay, because part of the, the reinvention of this film yeah. is, is is because what we're talking about is your voice as a filmmaker yeah but then we also there's this element of also giving your your on-screen character a voice which uh anybody that just gets in the first five minutes of this film is going to to understand what a powerful and what a specific thing that is which was which was part of this kind of last two years right yeah, yeah. you know i had not thought of my character as one that would be in direct confrontation with the audience. I had thought of my character as one who would be in direct conversation mm -hmm. with the audience, which is why, you know... Kind of like a narrator type thing? Is well, a, a narrator, but, you know, it was... I wasn't... I, sh I certainly wasn't thinking that we would begin the movie with, you know, I'm going to ask these questions, and if you're not comfortable with them, you can get up and go. Mm -hmm. You know, like, that's one thing that, that Gaynor surprised, surprised me with one morning, and I was like... Are you allowed to swear on these podcasts? Yes, please. I was like, God damn it. How did you get to know me so well in such a short period of time? That's perfect. Like, beginning this film with an invitation to leave sets, myself, sets, my, sets my character up as the person in the film who, who can do a, t a few things, who can say really provocative things, but who then can go on to function as both a character in the film and connective tissue between the characters and between the events. Um, so, you know, because we never got to the point in the, in the previous cut of integrating my character in the film, I, I can't say what it would or would not have been. Um, but in, in the cut that I, I worked on um, that became the final film, um, my character took on more of an edge mm -hmm. than I thought it would. My character, when I first, you know, thought of Yancey in the film was almost always in relation to my mother. Mm. It was almost always in, um, you know, in 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 conversation or in in a, in a verite scenes or somehow taking care of my mother. Um, in this version of the film, my my character becomes a a real provocateur, um, but also my character is allowed to say really honest and complicated things. Well, can we talk about because this is fascinating to me yeah. how how you shot that stuff? Sure, because of because. Um, in some cases, uh, I believe in, uh, Jocelyn is putting you in situations where you're reacting, right? I mean, you could talk, Jocelyn and, and Rob Rob Moss are master provocateurs. I mean, first of all, they're master they're master interviewers. But um, you know, like, um, so I, I I needed to be as alone as I possibly could in the, in those si you know situations. So and I have a if, picture of this. If you I can put, imagine, right? That. So I've got and I've got a line of sound blankets between me and the crew. Right. I am on one side of these sound blankets. The crew is on the other side. This is you know whether it's in Cambridge or in Brooklyn, the room is cut in half, and you know the, my lighting is a very you know very like. Um, contained cone, my focus is very tight. So I literally, you know, in, in the shot that we choose, I make it even difficult for me to move, right? So I'm as uncomfortable as I physically can be. I've got two tape marks on the lenses that are poking through the blankets, and that's all I see. And then on the other side of that blanket is a full production setup. Mm -hmm. The sound person, the interviewer with a monitor, um, you know, the, the, the DI, um, you know, PA is, is managing media, 
you know, like the the assistant camera person. It was, was a very precise look. That it was required a very a, precise data look. That needed the, all the production elements. All the production elements. Those interviews were shot six times over four and a half years, mm -hmm. and I wore, with the exception of one interview, the same outfit every single time, and I never knew what was going to be asked of me because it wouldn't have been fair for me to know in advance my questions. Those questions were arrived at in consultation with the editor. Um, you know, uh, either you know, with the first editor Shannon Kennedy, or with Yanis um, Jensen, uh, you know, the the second editor. Um, but I never knew what they would be, right? But but they always knew how it would inform the story. And because um, the other thing about this is, is that it's prompting you to say things that you don't say out loud. That that right? There's an element here. Yes. These are things that you've never said before. Exactly. And maybe I don't know if you've confronted them inside your head or not. But right? There's a there's an element. There's of that this too. whole soundtrack that you have that, yeah. that I've had my entire life. Right. Of of things that I've never said before. Things that people don't know. Things that, you know, like the entire thing about like you know the my brother's room being this sort of place of sanctuary for me as a queer kid. Um, you know, like reading his Playboy magazines and, you know, just the whole thing about the vacuum cleaner incident and how it, it both is something that I feel guilty about but something I also treasure because that phone call to me from my brother is this thing where I feel like he recognizes me, right? He's calling his little brother but he's calling me. You know, there's something in that that's, that's present and palpable. Um, and, you know, but getting to the place where you're actually willing to tell the truth like that uh, or getting to the place where you're able to say, you know, no offense to present company, but he looks like every white man I've ever seen, requires a level of, of pro, you know, provocation by the interviewers that um, were, it was real. Like when I was, when I'm mad in those interviews, I'm, I'm genuinely angry at Rob um, for asking me those questions, or I'm genuinely angry um, at Jocelyn for asking me the questions. It shows, that do. yeah, you know? that uncomfortableness. It's, 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 it's and it's, it's totally, it's, it's just yeah, like, it's, you know. We need to get you out of here, but there's one okay. thing I, I, we have to talk about. I yeah. mean, one of the things that I, I, one of the things that I think is so amazing about this film, and I, I, I've said this to you before, is, is that there's something very simple about it, in mm -hmm. a sense, but in that simplicity, just because you don't, there isn't this layering, there's all these elements, you know, and everything is such a precise choice and um, has such a specific layering of the meaning. And I think the best example of that is these photos because you don't have the archive. Um, part of it is the era, but also part of it is just that your brother's murder wasn't archived. Exactly. And, and so there's this, this I mean, I'll briefly summarize it for people who haven't seen it. You, you have all these family photos. They're kind of like the two, yep. they're kind of the four by fours. Yep. And you, the, the quote, it's not what they are, B-roll, but there's, it's your hand bringing them into frame, yep. which just connects so many things and has such a, that stuff, those meanings, and if we just even talk about the photos, like you have clarity. Mm. But reaching that right decision, right? I think this applies to all filmmakers. It's about, there's a million ways to do it and then finding the one that's just so specific, right? Yeah. That's just gonna like speak larger about things. Yeah, you know, I never considered, I never once considered pan and scan with these photographs because for me, th you know, this, this photo archive is what I have left of my family, right? So these aren't just images, they're also objects. And so I wanted to treat them as objects. I didn't ever want to treat them just as images. Um, the, the charge that you feel and the difference is that when I first started shooting them, I was shooting them as evidence. 
right, to sort of build this visual body of evidence that I didn't have because the case file is sealed by law. Mm. Um, and then after, you know, the sort of unexpected character turn. Um, we're at, we're in the last one. After this unexpected character turn, I, I, I essentially had the number of photographs double or triple in size. And the one thing that Jocelyn said to me after this happened, and we had them literally laid out on a gigantic conference table, mm -hmm. she said to me, treat them with care. Don't treat them as evidence. And that's when it all came together. That's when it, it went from being you know, a, a display of something that I have for you to show to prove that my family existed to me actually interacting with this family and putting, putting it back together again. Let's leave it there. Yancy Ford. Um, you know, it's been 14 Thank months. You. 14 months we've been talking about this I know. Movie, it's been and awesome. And it'll be over, and I'm so, I, I could not be happier. Likewise. Um, and um, I didn't get to talk to you about what's next, but I have That's to. That's okay. Yeah. Can, if if, if but anybody's but interested in working <laughs> with me, they, I'm sure my number and my email is really easy to find. Let's get you out of here. Music for this podcast is provided by composer Nathan Halpern from the Artist is Present soundtrack. Although Nathan had some great movies at Sundance this year, so maybe we'll see if we can't get something new from him for the next 50 episodes when we come back in the spring. Uh, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast on iTunes, and I'll uh, we'll see you in a couple months.